We return this morning to the Gospel of Matthew to pick up at the 27th chapter. However, we're going to be read, begin our reading back in verse uh, uh, 69 of chapter 26. I, I know that we've already covered the end of chapter 26. We did so a couple of months ago, as a matter of fact, or rather a few weeks ago, when we considered Peter's betrayal in connection with uh, Jesus' prophecy of Peter's betrayal. That prophecy, remember, issued as a vignette between the upper room where the Lord's Supper was celebrated and the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. However, it is almost certainly the case that Matthew has intentionally put Peter's denial of Jesus and Judas's betrayal of the Lord as he has here cheek to jowl in his gospel record to make a point. After all, chronologically speaking, Judas's episode of, uh, that Matthew gives us here likely took place at a later time. Luke doesn't record this uh, piece of history until all the way back in the first chapter of Acts. So Matthew is intending, he's bringing these two together for us to notice them in juxtaposition to each other and sandwiching between them, by the way, another betrayal, that of the chief priests and the elders. It is in the similarity of these three betrayals on the surface and yet the eternal difference of outcome of these three that we find the lesson for our own hearts and lives this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the masterful skill with which the authors of the word brought these things together that Matthew not only had the liberty but the unction, the Holy Spirit's guidance to take these two pieces of history and put them side by side to make this point. And we pray that we may not miss it. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to apply your word to us now. Deep in our hearts, fashioning us more and more after the image of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, beginning verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Now, we'll pause just a minute to remind ourselves that we're now at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, and here Jesus is undergoing this sham uh, nighttime trial and illegal, completely illegal, before the Sanhedrin, or at least a quorum of the Sanhedrin gathered there that ruling body of the Jews gathered for this, this uh, scandalous purpose. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear 
I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave him for the potters, gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. You hear in that 30 pieces of silver Isaiah's prophecy, and they esteemed him not. Jesus was a cheap commodity to them. Well, many of you will remember from your days in literature class that many medieval, medieval plays were described as comedies or tragedies. And those terms are used a little differently today, aren't they? In our time, the word comedy is to refer, used to refer to something as funny. Uh, there's a station on your XM radio list called Comedy Central, which is a broadcast of comedians. You all know what a comedy is on television when we use that term. Uh, lighthearted and laugh tracks and even darker elements, if they're introduced, treated in very silly ways. A tragedy, on the other hand, is something sad. Uh, a sad movie, for example, might be described as a tragedy. Or a book like Dorian Gray, you know, in which the character descends into darkness and dies. That's a tragedy. But historically, and for a good deal of history, in fact, from the days of Greek plays to the time of Shakespeare, the difference between a tragedy and a comedy had to do with its ending. And for very unmysterious reasons. A tragedy ended sad and a comedy ended happy. We could take the time to compare the plots, for example, of Hamlet and Twelfth Night, both by Shakespeare. The plays are similar. Both have moments of hilarity, and, and both have dark stuff, too. 
But Twelfth Night resolves happily while Hamlet ends in catastrophe. But you know, maybe for our purposes today, a better comparison would be, be between Winner's Tale and Othello. Because in both of those, there is an attempt to kill an innocent. Both men attempt to kill their innocent wives. Both feel deep regret. But the difference is in the end. The difference is in the outcome. I won't tell you the outcomes because I don't want to spoil them for you. You go read them yourself. But what Matthew presents to us this morning is tragedy and comedy in the classic sense of those words that I've been describing. Let's first look at the real-life tragedies of this passage. I know that Judas is the one who pops out. Of course, he is to us. But there's also subtle tragedy here as well. A subtle tragedy. Did you see it? Did you pick it up? I know you're probably way ahead of me. Consider with me the tragedy of the Sanhedrin. The religious leaders, Caiaphas, the high priests, the scribes, the elders. We've already looked at them last week. We've noticed the deep, deep irony of it all, that they are the very ones who are mocking Jesus as a false prophet, whereas a matter of fact, fulfilling Jesus, the true prophet's prophecies. Ancient prophecies, too, were being fulfilled, of course. More of them, as we read this morning in verse 7, not prophecies about Jesus in that case but prophecies about their wretched purchase of a potter's field with the blood money that they had first given to and then had thrown back at them by Judas. Now sometime in the sermon I'm going to address this side note, so that let's just clear it from the table right now, shall we? Um, Matthew says that in purchasing the potter's field that the blood money, what became known thereafter, uh, the field that is became known thereafter as uh, nicknamed as the field of blood, then in all of that they fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. That's what Matthew says. Uh, critics of the Bible are giddy, uh, jumping all over Matthew here for what they consider to be an incorrect ascription to Jeremiah of a prophecy that you read in Zechariah. Uh, though, we, though we certainly could... We won't spend much time on the question this morning because the answer really is fairly simple. The citation is a free combination of material from Zechariah and from Jeremiah. It's attributed to Jeremiah because he's the better known uh, and more important to one, one might say uh, Old Testament prophet. From Zechariah and a passage about the coming Messiah comes the 30 pieces of, the, uh, of silver and the potter. From Jeremiah, the potter again and the buying of the field. It really isn't all that difficult and it is not nearly the scandal. It's not at all the scandal that people want to make it to be who hate God's word. Now we've cleared that from the table. Turn your eyes to the religious leaders now. And watch as the tragedy unfolds before our eyes. After holding their false and wicked and totally illegal night trial of Jesus, the daytime finds them boldly wicked, all of them, verse 1, taking counsel against Jesus to put him to death. I will ask you once again, please, beg your patience to remember who these men are. These are the leaders of the church. They are the elders. 
the pastors, the ones called to shepherd God's people on behalf of the good shepherd himself. And now what are they doing? They are binding the shepherd to sacrifice him as a lamb, the innocent lamb. And to underscore the point, Matthew has Judas, of all people, come out and say it to them. Jesus is innocent. His innocent blood is what I've betrayed. And here are the religious leaders doing the very same thing. They're betraying the innocent one. They have bound him. Did you stop and let that sink in? They have bound Jesus, likely in chains, like a sacrifice, leading him away. And they will, verse 2, deliver him over to death. Now, the Greek word here translated deliver can and is often also translated betray. These leaders who should have received their Savior, their Lord Jesus, with adoration and praise and worship instead betray. Judas did it with a kiss. They do it with a decree. Both committed the very same crime. They betrayed Jesus to death. And they remained hardened. Even when Judas came to return the money, in fact, the more hardened than ever. When Judas comes later to tell them, filled with remorse, overwhelmed as he was with a sense of his sin and guilt, they don't melt at all. They only grow colder and harder. What is that to us, Judas? Imagine going to your pastor your heart is heavy. You're crushed under the weight of something terrible that you've done. And you just need some relief. You need him to say. You just need him to hear what you have done and remind you that God's grace is more than sufficient and to pray with you. But imagine instead you walk into your pastor's office door. You tell him what you've done and he says, so What? So what? What is that to me? Bug off. It's your problem. It's exactly what they said. I mean, pretty close. To acknowledge, you see the problem here is that to acknowledge that Judas had sinned would what? Would of necessity have required them to acknowledge that they had done just as despicably as he. And then, sin upon sin, these guys suddenly develop a, a case of religious scrupulosity. How utterly ridiculous that they should now consider, suddenly, all of a sudden, consider the money, the very silver pieces that they had counted off to Judas personally as unclean. So blinded are they and hardened by their sin, they cannot even see that it is they themselves who are the unclean ones. This is tragedy, dear ones. 
These men sin terribly against the Savior. And at the very moment that they should have broken down with tears, sackcloth and ashes, when the money they had paid for his innocent blood ended up returning to them, now blood stained into their own laps, they only grow the harder. Matthew wants you to note this tragedy of these religious leaders, the shepherds of God's people who should have been ushering and directing and leading God's people to the splendors of heaven. Instead, they themselves racing headlong to the pit of eternal hell. And remember, as Jesus said to them back in chapter 23, all the while making their followers twice the children of hell than they themselves. He would have us, my dear, religious friends. He would have us to take note of the warning here for religious people. To find themselves on the path of eternal darkness is entirely possible for religious people like you and me. Or as John Bunyan has it in his Pilgrim's Progress, then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. Second, consider with me the tragedy of Judas. Now we gave an entire sermon to him. That was the one I was thinking of two months ago. We, we came to that. But, uh, so we needn't spend a whole lot of time on him today. But notice today, what we did not see a shred of him uh, of in him last time the burdened conscience yes judas judas had a conscience he did and all people do all people have a conscience and judas's struck him down it forced judas to look full on at his wickedness in betraying his best friend the only one whose messianic ministry he had witnessed and even participated in, his conscience would not let him go. The conscience he had somehow silenced before under the weight of 30 lousy pieces of silver now is screaming at him. All the best writers have always understood this matter, this reality of human life, the conscience. Remember Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth? Remember her returning from Duncan's chambers, having helped to hide her husband's murderous guilt? And she holds out now, she has blood-stained hands too. And she says to her husband, with the same blood on her hands as, our, as on his, My hands are of your color, but I shame to wear a heart so white. In other words, she's claiming that though she has Duncan's blood on her hands, her conscience is clear. She feels no guilt about it. But you remember how that changes. And soon, at the sound of a knocking on the castle door, she tells Macbeth that they should go to their quarters and wash. A little water clears us of this deed, she says. 
a little water clears us of this deed. They're never able from that point to overcome conscience, are they? Macbeth doesn't get any sleep. And Lady Macbeth is constantly walking in hers. Remember, rubbing her hands maniacally, crying out, Out! Out, damned spot! Trying against hope to get rid of the blood. To rub it as she likes. She cannot get rid of it, no matter how hard. Here's yet a spot, she cries, desperately rubbing. Here's the smell of blood still. Shakespeare understood the human conscience, didn't he? Judas' was rising up, accusing him of blood guilt. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He meant every word. They rose from this tortured conscience that now demanded satisfaction. Oh, conscience, who can stand against thy power? Endure thy stripes or agonies one hour. Stone, gout, strapado, racks, whatever is dreadful to sense, are only toys to this. No pleasures, riches, honors, friends can tell how to give ease to this. Tis like to hell. And in true tragedy, Judas went so to speak, from one hell to another. From the hell of a fiery conscience, he went to the hell of fire, and that by his own doing. In a series of verbs that are meant to leave you breathless, in shock, verse 5, he threw down the silver, he departed, he went, he hanged himself. He had to be rid of the money, yes, But he also had to be rid of himself. Two tragedies. Is there no comedy? Matthew, help us. Is there no relief? Third, Peter. Don't forget Peter. We left him weeping, didn't we, at the end of chapter 26. He had a conscience too, didn't he? And it broke him as Judas's broke him. It demanded relief of him as Judas's conscience demanded relief. It filled him with remorse as Judas's conscience filled him with remorse, but with a difference. Maybe you remember our time together in Corinthians years ago, or maybe you remember it, if not from them, from your own reading. There are two kinds of sorrow, aren't there? Two kinds of sorrow. There is worldly sorrow, says the apostle. And where does it lead? Do you remember the text? Worldly grief produces death. That's where Judas's guilt led him, where his worldly grief led him to death. But godly grief. Ah, godly grief produces repentance, writes Paul, that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. 
And that's where Peter's guilty conscience led him. Look at this. Where, where did Judas go with his guilt? Where did he go? He went to a tree, didn't he? He went to a tree. And there he threw a rope over a branch and secured it somehow and got himself high enough that he could hang himself to death on a tree. Peter went to a tree as well, didn't he? Ultimately, we know Peter also went to a tree. It was also a tree of death. It was the tree of Calvary where Jesus died and shed his blood for Peter and for you and for me. And for all who will come to that tree, who will come to Calvary in faith to be washed, to be washed in the very blood that our sinful, blood-stained hands have shed. Lady Macbeth, poor lady, she could not wash the blood from her hands. Poor Judas, he could not wash the blood from his heart. You and I, my fellow believers, are heart and hand washed in and by the blood of Jesus. We are. And yet there are still those in the hearing of my voice right now who are not cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Your conscience continues, doesn't it, to scream within you for relief. Maybe you've even considered Judas's route. Judas's escape solution route whatever you want to call it is an option you know if you think you've thought you're, if only I could end it all and be released from this weight of guilt on my conscience all day every day maybe you've even tried that route that Judas took I'm here to tell you in God's name I'm here to tell you, there is release, and there is relief for your guilty conscience. There is. You can have your tragedy turned into a comedy. You can have your dark, sad, dismal, sinful life and heart turned into a bright and blessed and happy and blameless life and heart. You can. Peter did. Look, the only difference between Judas and Peter is clearly not that one betrayed the Lord and the other did not. The difference is not that one was guilty and that the other was innocent. Both men's consciences rightly condemned them through waves of shame one after another on the shore of their souls and awashed them with grief, with weeping, with mourning for what 
they had done. Every one of us, every one of us has done wickedly. Every one of us has denied him and betrayed him. Every single one. We all stand guilty and in need of forgiveness of our sin. We all share that in common with, yes, Peter, and we share that in common with Judas. We're all in the same boat on that one. The difference between Judas and Peter is simply this, where they took their guilty conscience for relief. That's all the difference. And now you have a decision to make. Two trees stand before you. Two trees. One promises false relief that leads only to death. The other guarantees you true relief. Relief and life. Life that is abundant. Life that is eternal through Jesus Christ who died precisely to set you free from your guilt from your sin, from your shame, from your bondage. Come, Jesus says. Come. Come to me. Hear the voice of Jesus. All you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Not all stories are strictly comedies or, or tragedies, are they? Strictly one or the other. In fact, many of them, if not most, are what we could call, and rightly do call, tragic comedies. They're a mixture of terrible tragedy and great comedy. Jesus' story was, and is. His story ends happily, comedy, after great tragedy. He died. He died an horrific death. If the Lord gives us time to consider it in the weeks ahead here in Matthew, we will come to the death of Jesus. Tragedy. But that's not where it ends. It ends in comedy, in victory, with our Savior's resurrection from the dead and His triumph over the grave. His story truly is tragic comedy. And so is yours. If you are in Christ, how is it so? Well, the Bible tells us that it is for all of us who believe in Him because we're made one with Him, because we are one with Him. By faith, we are in union with Christ. We are one with Christ. And that means, the Scripture says, that means that His death is your death. And his resurrection is your resurrection. 
We died with him, and we rose with him. His tragicomedy is your tragicomedy. Paul writes it in his letter to the Romans, doesn't he? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's your tragic comedy. It's your life and mine, you see, brothers and sisters. Dear flock in Christ is a true tragic comedy because his life is your life and his death is your death and his resurrection is your resurrection because you and I are one with him through faith. Listen to me. Your life does not have to end in tragedy. It doesn't. As tragic as your life truly has been thus far, now recognize your sin for what it is. The awful offense against God that it is. Then confess that sin to Him, wet with your tears. Turn away from that sin and turn to Jesus. Come to the cross. Cling to the cross. Draw near to God through the innocent blood of Jesus shed for you. And you will find that his tree of death is in fact for you his tree of life.